You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Listeners should note that this episode has been recorded remotely. Therefore, the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to our Tomorrow Ready Series 2021. My name is Juliette Foster. I'm a broadcaster, journalist and also your host for today's event, Transform with Digital. It is a big subject, which is why we have an excellent lineup of speakers on hand to provide valuable insights and discussions to bring our program to life and help you grow your business. So to kick us off, what's going to happen is that I'm going to introduce our speakers and sit back while they give us a quick background on their roles and experience. One of the rare occasions to have a break. But joining us today, we have Roland Emmons. Let me tell you about Roland. He's a head of technology sector from HSBC UK and he also has the best job in the world. Well, that's what he tells me. (laughs) But Roland, please share your background with the audience and tell them why your job's better than mine. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. So I think I've got the best job in the bank and maybe in the country because I get to spend a huge amount of time with really exciting, innovative technology firms. We're we're very lucky. We bank 66,000 tech firms in the UK and I've spent time with over 400 of them during the last 12 months. And and tech is a very fast moving, very exciting sector. Okay, Roland, thank you so much for that. Now, next up, we've got Humphrey Rose. Now, Humphrey is the category director from the Hutt Group Ingenuity. So, Humphrey, it's really good to see you. So, if you can tell the audience what it is that you do and why you think your job is better than Roland's and mine. Morning, Julia. I don't, I'm not sure I want to get into that particular competition, I'm afraid. Um, no, I'm a category director at the Hutt Group Ingenuity. So, you may have seen uh, the Hutt Group in the press over the past few months. Um, there are really two parts of the business that, that we run. Um, the Hut Group has some retail channels, um, so one of the world's biggest nutrition retailers and white protein, um, and also one of the world's biggest uh, beauty retailers, pure play commerce retailers, and look fantastic, as well as uh, a slightly uh, a stable of other smaller retailers too. Um, we own some brands, and then we also uh, run the ingenuity part of the business, which is the, the platform part of the business, where we sell the infrastructure um, that powers those e-commerce businesses um, to, to broader brand owning clients. Um, which is fascinating and um, I'm really excited to share some some insights and some experience um, with you all today. Well, thank you so much for that. And look, to both of you, we appreciate the fact that you've taken the time out of your busy schedules to be with us, so thank you. And Roland, you'll be delighted to know that you've drawn the short straw for the first question. You're not intimidated by it, you love it. But look, really, there are so many technological trends that are happening at the moment. But what is it that companies need to be looking out for, not just for this year and beyond, but also how can they harness all of that to make sure that their businesses thrive in a market which is constantly changing? It will never be static. That's quite a hard question. If we just look at their technology side for a second, they probably fall into two buckets. The the stuff that's positive, the stuff that's going to drive your business forward, then also the stuff that's going to come and kind of nip you at the ankles or worse if you're not careful. And and I think the positives are so digital, um, and that's digital in the broadest sense. That's websites, that's social media. They've got a potential to be your best salesperson. One of the trends that we're seeing across a, a lot of businesses at the moment is that the digital footprint of the business is behind where the business really is from a from an operation and a product perspective, because everybody in the business has been running really hard to work out what's going on with COVID. And now we're seeing a big re 
refresh of of websites and, and social media. Um, you've got things like Internet of Things, smart devices, so so wearables and and uh, industrial IoT sensors that allow people to to measure things remotely. So you only need to send an engineer, for example, when there's a fault or when something goes out of range. Um, another thing linked back to digital is this huge thing about self-service. We know that consumers are very, very happy. In fact, their preference is generally to serve themselves. And from a um, net promoter score perspective, the moment a consumer can't self-serve themselves and if they have to call a contact center, um, you're in uh, well negative territory to where you would be if they could self-serve. And then you've got bigger picture themes like ESG, environmental, social and governance that are coming along, so the sustainability agenda of that. And you've also got well-being, physical and mental. And these are things that are going to influence whether um, staff are going to come on and work with you and how business is going to want to engage with you. So that's sort of the group of positives. And then on the, the slightly more negative side, because I'm a banker, so I have to give you a balanced view and talk about the risks as well. You've got cyber, which are the things that if you're not careful are going to come and get you. And so much of that is around good process and around the human beings um, as much as the technology. You've got change risks. So we've seen businesses evolve through one of the biggest changes ever and have come out the right side of that. And that's because they've managed to evolve. But there is a piece here around disruption is going to continue. So you've got to continue evolving. And again, as I mentioned, ESG on a positive ESG could also be a negative. So I think they fall into sort of two broad buckets. Mm. And can I get your take on that, Humphrey, as well? Because you gave us a wonderful outline of what it is that Hunt Group Ingenuity does. But also technology is central to your offering. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I think the distinction Rodan there made between digital and digital channels that consumers interact with, which to your layman consumer, they probably would qualify social media and uh, mobile as, as technology, but, but let's keep that as kind of the phrasing as digital for now. And then the technology aspect here, actually within the Hut Group, technology underpins every every part of our business, it underpins the e-commerce platform. Underpins the data-driven marketing algorithms that we, we use to bid on terms and to drive really efficient sales through our, our partners' websites. But it also underpins the nuts and bolts of moving product around the world, which is one of the, the biggest uh, barriers to entry that, that many of our clients see. We have a global network distribution, but what underpins that is a really, really advanced warehouse management system, which allocates product around those different warehouses allows us to, to identify the right couriers to get it to the end consumer wherever they are in the world. Um, and that piece of software is a huge part of the IP that, that makes THG the, the very valuable company that it, that it done. Do you ever worry that you could actually fall behind the technology because it is constantly changing? There is so much there. We know about its disruptive capacity. Does it ever, do you ever get sleepless nights about this, that there could be something in the trick box that you're missing? I personally don't because I've got lots of very, very clever technologists who work with me who I have huge amounts of faith in. Um, I'm sure that those... Do they ever have sleepless nights? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, look, I think, I think it's exactly the right point to make. And, and not only is it driven by kind of competitive pressures um, of forever reducing barriers to entry for clients as new businesses bring ever cheaper ways of um, accessing e-commerce, of accessing distribution networks, of accessing marketing channels, but also the pace of change that we're seeing from consumers as well. And, and the, the consumer-driven aspect of this is something that has really, really accelerated. All of those cliches around five years of progress in five months, all of that, all of those, those sayings. Actually, when it comes to e-commerce and e-commerce penetration in particular, that's a really, really clear symptom of of that change that's happened incredibly quickly, particularly you know, if we take grocery commerce, for example, 
hovering around seven, eight, nine percent of sales in the UK um, historically, and then leapt up to twenty percent plus in the in the pandemic. And we're now only starting to see that come back down to uh, sort of leveling off at about 12, 13, 14 percent. And that is a huge, a huge paradigm shift in, in, in what that means for grocers. Tesco can now do it profitably for the first time in their history, as they can do it profitably for the first time in their history because of the scale that's, that's been pumped into the system. So it's um it's been a really, really interesting point in time, both from a kind of provision of technology and digital services to clients, but also in consumer behaviour as well. And let's stick with that point, Roland, because this, this is the thing about the pandemic, because it caused disruption on the one hand, but we also saw, as Roland's pointed out, how it actually empowered consumers, that it really drove them because we were, well, not all of us were online ordering things from Amazon or whoever our supplier happened to be. But the point that I'm getting at is that do you see that as one of the enduring legacies of the pandemic from a technologist perspective? Uh, well, I guess only time will tell. So, so I'm a fundamental believer that we're living through the fourth industrial revolution at the moment. And the changes that we've seen driven by the pandemic are change, changes that were already there beforehand if you knew where to look. So I'm, I'm less sure about the technology because technology continues to evolve at pace. I think there are some, some areas that are very important, which I'll touch on in a second. But I think it's the human being piece. I think Nicola summed it up really nicely. I think there's two parts of that. There's the, there's the enabling people. And that's very much about, OK, well, why are you using that? technology is that technology really the best solution for the problem you're trying to solve or is it just a case that you're throwing technology at a problem because you want to try and solve the problem and technology may not be the answer it may be systems it may be process it may be people yeah because fundamentally technology does a couple of things in my in my view and, and one of those is is automate things and the second thing is it gets you somewhere that you can't get to without the technology so big data huge amounts of analytics and if you look at technology through that lens that gives you i think a slightly different perspective of okay how do we help people do their jobs better. Um, the other sort of change that we've seen is we've seen a huge amount of willingness, a much greater willingness than ever before from uh, everybody, from suppliers, customers, consumers, to actually accept change and in, and in fact go a step further and demand change. So I think that uh, theme will probably carry on. And then you've got this whole piece around developing agility and embedding agility in organisations. And you know, whether that's a technology piece or whether that's, uh, again, a human piece, I think the two are intrinsically linked and we, and we shouldn't forget about them. So to make sure I actually answer the question, I think in terms of enduring tech trends, digital we've talked about, self-service we've talked about, the transition to mobile and the cloud as people work in different ways, huge, huge capability of that. And then you've got data and insights, which leads us to get to completely different decisions and conclusions than we probably could have got to without that data. And you are nodding in agreement with that, Humphrey, but so let me, let me put this question to you, because look, a business like yours, it has to continually innovate, but it's part of that innovation, or certainly that starting point, addressing one of the questions that Roland raised here, do we really need this piece of technology? What does it bring to the table? And how can you develop that new technology to meet the needs of your clients? Because as we've learned, they are constantly changing, and certainly the pandemic has been an enabler in that process. Yeah, absolutely. The, the part that I was nodding to in particular um, in Roland's answer is the is the change in digital literacy that we're seeing amongst clients. Um, so I was a consultant for 10 years before I joined the Hutt Group and um, the, the education and understanding of digital channels and of technology amongst many of our clients has gone through the roof, particularly in the last 12, 18 months. It's just been such, been so high on all businesses' agendas and they've seen that as a primary sales channel and leadership have understood that actually 
I need to understand this. I need to be able to talk about this knowledgeably because it's it's my single sales channel at the moment. So it's been a really interesting human shift, not necessarily from a consumer perspective, but from a business operative perspective, I think. Um, but to answer your question, Juliet, I think the, 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 the client demands and the, and the advancement of those client demands come from the consumer primarily. Um, so, for example, we're seeing lots of talk around social commerce at the moment and, and that kind of blurring of lines between engagement channels and sales channels. Um, and, and those consumer-driven trends come not just from a um, domestic perspective, but they change massively. If you go to Asia and look at the e-commerce behavior of consumers in China, for example, very, very different to trying to run e-commerce businesses in Europe. Um, live sale um, sort of TV shows, video commerce, um, Tmall and Singles Day, there are, there are real nuances to these different geographical areas. And that drives reactions and demands from clients in different ways. But also from clients, we understand their, their business case when it comes to launching e-commerce, particularly if you're a brand owner. Um, and, and that business case is around not only driving revenue and driving profit, but also driving access to data. And, and that is what digital channels and what um, technology provides for, for many of these clients is a much clearer, much more agile understanding of their end consumers. And so we're having to constantly develop our own um, technology and databases and methods of transferring data um, all within GDPR and regulations to give them that real-time access so that they can realize the value from, from their, the investments they've made which, you know, uh, business case is, rests upon tangible aspects, revenue, gross margin, profit, um, but also upon intangibles around data and, and how that has driven their um, proposition. Yeah, I mean, that, and that is a fascinating part, isn't it, Roland, that it's, it just seems that businesses have to understand their customers in a new, different way. And it's a bit like the hare and the tortoise. You, you can't afford to take your time on this. You really have to be the hare if you're to keep the customers on board and to really have that better working relationship with you because they're singing from the same hymn sheets. That's what, that's what you're trying to convey. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of sense in that. I mean, there's, there's a quote um, which John F. Kennedy, uh, well, I'm going to paraphrase somewhat. When written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, the other represents opportunity. And we're exactly in that position at the moment. We've got through the danger piece, we're now in the opportunity piece. The world is continuing to evolve at a pace. And, and you know, I sort of slightly jokingly say there's probably three types of firms out there today, technology-driven firms, um, firms that are technology-enabled and firms that are going to struggle in the future because the consumer are going to expect them to be technology-enabled or technology businesses. I mean, stay with me on this, Roland, because, look, we're talking about how technology is transforming the relationships between businesses and customers and the expectations arising from that. But there, there is the much bigger question, which is about work, obviously defining work as much as anything. So what role will technology play in that definition, the new ways of working? And what do businesses need to be aware of? when they're embedding the technology to construct these new working models, whatever they might be. Because also as well, they have to find new ways of measuring productivity to see if they're actually delivering on their roadmap. Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you take a step back, the office fundamentally was the same pre-pandemic as it was over 100 years ago, lines of desks with people doing stuff at those desks. But if you look how technology has changed 
during those hundred years, it's it's almost as dark as chalk and cheese. But I think if you're looking at how technology can support the change, again, it comes back to the people. What do the people need? What do the people want? There are some fundamental risks. So there's some some pretty scary stats around digital transformation. Digital transformation is when you're changing from old legacy systems that are very rigid into flexible, um, probably cloud and mobile native systems. 70% of all digital transformation programs fail to deliver um, half of their anticipated benefits. That, that's a shocking statistic. And then when you start to unpick those things, and, and by the way, digital transformation doesn't just happen in, in massive global firms like HSBC, it happens in firms of, of all sizes uh, at all scales. So if you unpick how bad that stat is, it's basically three reasons. The, the technology change piece is relative, relatively easy in inverted commas to deliver. Um, the bit that, that is much harder and the two bits that usually get forgotten is around process. So people try and ram old process down new technology. Oh, funnily enough, it doesn't work as human beings are very bright, very clever individuals, very clever uh, species that find ways around systems and process to get things done. And then you've got the piece around culture. Too often uh, employees or, or staff see um, technology changes a threat for them. And actually, in many ways, it, it may not be a threat, but they've not had it, whether it's sold to them or explained to them or or the the benefit of the change, they, they've really not been engaged in that journey. So if I flip that on its head, what does successful tech implementation look like? Well, you need to change the tech and you need to understand clearly what you're trying to do and the problem you're trying to solve. You need to explain to your, your team what you're trying to do and the problem you're trying to solve and, and get their buy-in for it because most of the time they actually know what the solution is. And then it's a case of, of changing the, the process. So I guess if you sort of look at that more sort of holistically around exactly what um, what is the future going to look like? Well, remote working requires different sorts of meetings. Entirely agree with that. It comes back to that. What is the pain point? What are you trying to achieve? Do we need to be in an office? Do we need to be down down the line? How do you actually manage all of those things? One of the one of the things that a lot of people are talking to me about at the moment as we're coming out of out of COVID lockdown, and, and I've personally experienced it, is people have got used to immediacy of everybody being online not quite 24-7, but certainly for eight or nine hours a day and getting an immediate response. And as we transition back to some degree of hybrid or some degree of normality, people are spending time traveling, people are spending time meeting face-to-face. -face. So I had, a, I had a day last week where I was out and I didn't really see my inbox between 10 in the morning and four in the afternoon. I came back to 50 emails and a number of those were the same people chasing me about the same stuff. It's like, well, hold on, we need to find a new way of working now. It's almost as if we need to relearn what the what history used to look like and therefore what the future may look like that's that's pretty scary actually let's let's not go there but i mean for the purposes of this interview Humphrey, when you look back over the past year how would you say the the use of technology has shifted at your company because clearly there have been changes you've had to deliver more so what, what, what would you identify as the key changes and more to the point how many of those are likely to stick going forward yeah, it's a very good question. I think it, it speaks actually to, to one of the points Roland was making around culture just then. Um, so clearly the, the change of you know, uh, using Zoom, using Microsoft Teams, that, that is really well, uh, well documented and I think widely experienced by many people who are, who are working through the current conditions. I think from a cultural perspective, one of the things that, that the Huck Group does very well is putting put data in the hands of consumers so that you don't end up having to have a meeting where a brilliantly crafted set of slides tells you the story of why site X is performing the way it is or what we need to um, 
what budget we need from client Y in order to drive performance of another site. Actually, what we do is, is give open access to a set of Tableau data boards, which allows people to interpret that data in their own way, to understand and to access it in a very, very easy and understandable way. And, and I think that speaks to Roland's point around, um, around the cultural change where you put data in the hands of um, not necessarily analytical people, but, but people who can think about the problem and, and think about the information they're being shown in a, in a productive way, then that makes a fundamental shift in the way that businesses operate. Um, and and that, that piece around um, putting that information in, in the right hands on, on, sort of on demand, as it were, on apps via um, Tableau dashboard, via mobile, that's something that, as I was saying before, changes in the mind of the consumer, but also changes in the mind of business operatives. And that, that makes a really big difference in the way that um, businesses consume technology and can use technology. The vibe I'm getting here apart from how you're using data and how you see it developing going forward, is that your company is already in the process of defining what work is, not just for the now, but for the future. Was this something that was already happening, or do you think that in some ways the pandemic forced it on you to actually look at what you want to do in the future? What work is going to mean to the company? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. I think it, it's, it, it again comes back to that twofold acceleration, an acceleration in consumer behavior and an acceleration in working practices driven by the fact that we're all, all working remotely. Um, and, and I think everybody was on that path, um, but we've had to climb the curve much, much more quickly than, than we ever planned to. And some things we found have worked okay and everybody's adapted. Um, and some things like email productivity, like calendar productivity, Roland, come, come back into the conversation. I'd love to get your response to that, but also the response to, to the question about using technology, because as Humphrey said, look, you're, you're climbing a hill effectively. So how can you, how, or how can businesses leverage that technology to climb that hill? And I'm talking about automation and AI specifically. And are there examples where you've seen businesses doing this exceptionally well? Because it is a changing landscape. I think on the changing landscape piece, that everybody acknowledges that the world has changed and, and the number of conversations I've had with clients where they say, I know that what's got us here is going to be something is, is not going to be the same as what's going to get us going forward. So what I've got to work out is what is that getting getting us where we need to be in the future piece. And, and one of the biggest things that we've seen is you know, consumers, customers, uh, staff, suppliers, the more you talk to them, the more you get a better understanding of the ecosystem. We are seeing this sort of greater ecosystem evolving outside of individual businesses. But if you if you flip that and say, okay, what does that mean for technology? Um, if I look at some of the bigger themes that are going on, say for example, the the no touch economy. You know, actually, um, in a post COVID world, people don't want people on their site who don't belong there. So that's visiting workers, whether that's consultants, whether that's engineers, whatever that may be, they don't necessarily want them there because it increases the transmission risk. And when you start touching surfaces, your chance of getting COVID go up 80 times. So actually, let's not touch surfaces. Let's not have people that, that aren't part of our group, part of our ecosystem in our building. So that then says, okay, how do you how do you manage things like lifts or things like, you know, whatever it may be, whether it's an engineering piece of equipment or in an office that needs servicing? Well, the great thing around Internet of Things and smart sensors is these things are very cheap. They're a few dollars. They can sense things. They can manage things. They can say, okay, 
let's use a lift as an example because we can all relate to it. This lift motor is using more energy than it normally would. That could be a precursor it's going to fail. It's generating more heat than it normally would. Again, it could be a precursor it's going to fail. Uh, and that gets you to uh, effectively proactive maintenance. Instead of sending somebody to go and service that lift that costs, you know, 100 quid effectively for every visit, services that every X number of months, every three months or six months, they only actually come on site when there's something that needs to be done. And it's a, it's a intervention, it's a proactive intervention rather than reactive. And if you think about sort of take that to the next step and you, and you think, okay, well, that's fantastic because that doesn't only work within industry, that also works within sort of well-being and consumers and, and smart technology. Um, and one of my friends who's a GP part of the week and he lectures medical students the other part of the week, he, he reckons within five years, he will have the equivalent of an out of order report on his on his uh, desk when he's in the surgery that says, you need to phone Mr. Emmons because based off his vital signs, he's, out, he's, he's, he's you're gonna have a heart attack or something's wrong. And that also leads to, and I'm using this intentionally, that leads to a societal good. So, so I would have some intervention before something really bad happened. And if that bad thing happened, I would be expensive to fix. So you can kind of roll that into many sorts of different areas and I guess sort of final final comment on this um, we shouldn't see these these tools as big scary things too often people talk about AI and automation as big big scary things so if I give you an example from the US again I'm going to going to talk a little bit about technology and a little bit about medicine so if I told you that uh, your GP gets first diagnosis right only somewhere between 50 and 60 percent so that means between 40 and 50 percent of the time they get the first diagnosis wrong um, IBM Watson, their uh, AI natural language processing machine in America, has got a uh, medical practitioner's license. It gets it right about 30% of the time. But if you stick those two bits of technology together, the GP with a, a listening uh, AI chatbot, well, sorry, AI and natural language processing bot listening to the conversation, they immediately get somewhere between 90 and 95% first time accuracy. And then you then ask people, say, well, how do you feel if you have a, a, a conversation with your GP and it's being listened to by a machine? Well, if it's going to mean that my chances of getting diagnosed um, earlier are, are and, and more accurately are, are increased, and therefore I'm not going to be given drugs I don't need, I'm going to be ill for a shorter period of time. Actually, people suddenly go, oh, yeah, I can really get that. And it's about how do you transition that into business and how do you explain to people the benefits of these technologies? I'm using an extreme example there because I think it's one that everybody can relate to. Yeah, but you, you say it's an extreme example, but the fact is it could be a reality at some point in the game. So thank you for actually for introducing that to us. But I mean, look, Humphrey, in terms of transitioning these different technologies, what trends are particularly important to you? And what sort of pressure is on you to make sure that you stay ahead of them? Can you be ahead of that curve? Is it a realistic expectation? I think so, and I think the, um, the the big theme across all of these trends, I think, is in a reduction of barriers to entry, whether that be access to data to do some of the predictive behavioural analysis that Roland was talking about there in the, through the lens of medicine or through engineering, but actually applies to marketing as well, and applies to um, and applies to fulfilment in the, in the supply chain. The, the accessibility of that data and the accessibility of the technology that sits behind that data has come right down in the last five years. You know, we look at, if we take e-commerce again as, as an example, 10, 15 years ago, e-commerce was the preserve of the big mainstream major retailers, broadly speaking. Now, direct-to-consumer e-commerce for brand owners, for small retailers, has completely, there's been a paradigm shift in, in the retailers and the brands that customers can engage with and how they can engage with them. And what that is translating to is a real blurring of lines now between 
retail and brand owners, where before there were two very distinct entities with marketing in the middle, TV, newspaper, traditional above the line marketing. And now those two entities have blurred entirely. And what, what that's bringing about, we, we think, is a, um, a polarization of those two brands and those businesses, but on, on different ends of the brand owner spectrum, where you have some brands who have high brand equity, who are engaging, who are digitally first, who are digitally native. They engage with consumers directly. They have a differentiated position moving forward. At the other end of the spectrum, you have brand owners who are not that differentiated, who are Amazonified in a way, and whose route to market is through convenience and price are the two big differentiators. And there are very, very few retailers on the planet who can deliver the real extraordinary levels of convenience that, that Amazon can bring. And we believe being that part of the spectrum um, is, is a difficult place to be to Roland's point. And, and if you don't make that transformation, and deliver a really differentiated, digitally-led experience to consumers, then life is going to get more and more difficult over the coming years. Okay, great way to end this. But gentlemen, thank you so much. You've been absolute sports and taking on those questions as well. I know that there are a few curveballs, but you handled them brilliantly. So well done. And thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.